When I look back at my university days, I often think, could I have done more with my spare time? And the answer to that is yes, definitely. So what do people do now? Well, at Cardiff University, where I went, they now have the Cardiff University Innocent Project, which was set up in 2006. And over 90 students spend their spare time working on various cases where people say they've been wrongfully convicted. The university have had two success stories, Dwayne George, whose conviction for murder was eventually overturned after the students worked tirelessly for nine years, and Gareth Jones, whose conviction for a serious sexual assault was reviewed for six years by the students and was eventually overturned 10 years after he was convicted. In this podcast episode, I talked to two people who run the project, Dr. Dennis Eady, who is a law lecturer, and Dr. Holly Greenwood, who is also a law lecturer, about the work that they do with the students and how they manage their expectations. Because as we all know, there are so many people that have been wrongfully convicted, but it is a real uphill, almost impossible struggle to overturn a conviction. This is the Cardiff Innocent Project podcast episode. Thank you, Dennis. I wondered if you could start by just telling us why you became involved with the Innocence Project. Well, I come from a different background. Uh, most of my career was spent in working with people with disabilities, but I got very interested in, very concerned about miscarriage of justice, did voluntary work for a long time, went back into higher education, did a PhD on miscarriage of justice, and then I uh, got interested in Innocence Projects around the country, and fortunately was approached by Cardiff to get involved here so that was in 2009 so uh, it's been a sort of learning curve since then really and, and holly what what how about you how how come you became involved in this sort of work so i also joined in 2009 but as an undergraduate student so i was always very interested in crime and i think I kind of wanted to prosecute crime or sort of, you know, I was I was looking to go into legal practice. So as an undergrad, when I found out about the Innocence Project being offered to students, it appealed to me. So I went to the training and luckily got a place on, on the project the same year as Dennis joined, so in 2009. And then obviously, once I started working on the cases... The first case that I worked on, I found extremely shocking to me that that person had been convicted in the first place and the difficulties that we were facing in trying to appeal against that conviction kind of got me very passionate about the subject of miscarriages of justice and I I kind of went from there really doing a master's and also doing a PhD and worked with Dennis kind of throughout that time. Thank you. And I wondered if you both could just tell us a little bit about how and why the project started and what you do to help people. Well, as we mentioned earlier, the Innocence Projects were a big issue in the United States, very successful in the United States. And Michael Norton from Bristol University began setting up originally the project in Bristol and then other projects around the country. And because of my voluntary work on miscarriage of justice, I approached uh, Professor Julie Price about, I approached somebody else who was in fact a member of the group South Wales Liberty, as it was then, who was also a professor in the law department, but he put me on to Julie. Julie then set up the project in 2006, for which she's never forgiven me. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, for that that first period of time, it was largely run by Julie with a group of students, and I think she invited me in to try and assist with it. How many people 
ask for help? How many people make applications? Well, we get about, on average, about three letters a fortnight on average of some sort of inquiry. Some of those are not necessarily asking for help, but most of them are. There's then a, it's then a kind of process of uh, responding. We try and respond to every letter, which is very time-consuming in itself. One of the great complaints of, of prisoners and the great difficulties they have is they're forever writing to people and getting no answer at all. So it's very important. We, we do, I think, try to pride ourselves on some sort of customer service, as it were, that we, we make sure we respond to everybody. And the difficulty then is, well, how do you respond? Because you don't know until you've got some case papers and some information whether this is a case that you have any hope of, of progressing at all. And so there is a sort of process, a sort of a filtering process, but it's not a very formal one. Uh, in general, we would send out a, a short questionnaire getting the basic facts of the case, an agreement for us to collect case papers or to start that process and try and take it from there. But, of course, the difficulty is that getting the case papers is a quite a big and sometimes difficult job uh, and very problematic and often incomplete. And then you might find, once you've got to that stage, that this is really a case that you can't really get anywhere at all with. Um, but in the majority of cases that get to that stage, we will try and review the case pretty thoroughly and to try and see if we can find any way forward. And I sometimes wonder if what we're doing is, is as much a social work job as a, as a legal job, really, in that we're giving people just a little bit of attention, a little bit of a response, a little bit of perhaps hope. And we always struggle with the question of whether we're creating false hope, whether false hope is better than no hope. So we try and do what we can. And uh, we inevitably, if we have taken on a case, we've got a student group on it, it usually ends up with one of three things, either a report which kind of says, well, you know, at this stage, we can't see a way forward, or a report which says, you know, we need to find now practicing lawyers who can take this forward or at least to get an opinion on whether it can be taken forward. Or in some cases, if there's been an appeal already, possibly a CCRC application, of which we've made, well, over 30 in since the time we've been going. And I know you, you've had two success stories one was Dwayne George and one was Gareth Jones. I wondered if talk about what happened in those cases. Well, Dwayne George was a CCRC referral. That's the only CCRC referral we've ever had out of the 30 attempts we've made. So that's how difficult it is with the CCRC. Uh, Gareth Jones was a, a first appeal, albeit well out of time. Um, Dwayne George was a case which came down to a number of things, really, partly the main one being a gunshot residue issue, which is actually very similar to the, the Barry George case. Um, there were also issues of voice recognition and um, sign recognition in that case. And the issues in the end were, were very similar in the sense that the, the so-called um, evidence of gunshot residue was seen to be really of no evidential significance. It was probably something that might have come through something in, in the environment. You couldn't say it was necessarily down to gunshot residue. One of the ironies of that case was that um, the coat that was concerned with that was never actually worn by Dwayne George anyway. In fact, it was his dad's coat. Oh, really? okay. He was not aware at the time uh, of the of the killing, and although he, he did know the people who probably did commit the offence. Uh, Gareth Jones was a very, very different case in that it involved a young man working in a care home. It's a bit of a, a long story, but in essence, he, 
he discovered this wound, sounded the alarm. His colleagues came in almost straight away, and then he was accused of a sexual assault, which was, in our view, plainly incorrect. There were also issues there of the way he was treated, in that he had a, a learning disability, um, relatively mild learning disability, but still quite a significant one in terms of his understanding. So there are issues in his, his treatment at trial, which uh, also helped to convince the Court of Appeal that uh, the case should be quashed. And what sort of work did you and your students do on those cases? Because I appreciate, because I've read both judgments, but on both occasions, the judge refers to the work that you and your students had done to help those individuals. But what sort of things did they do on those sort of cases? Right, well, in Dwayne George, obviously, we Dwayne had actually made a previous CCRC application, which had been rejected. But I think they, they looked at, at all the evidence again, and in particular, the, the new evidence that was discovered was, was a case of contacting experts and identifying, looking at the literature around gunshot residue, looking at this, identifying experts, getting an expert report, exploring the eyewitness information. How accurate was that? Are there further arguments that could be used on that? How did these various elements of the case link up with each other? That was quite an important factor in the end. The, the judges said, well, you could link the gunshot residue to the eyewitness and eyewitness testimony. But if one of those fell, then the others were very weak. So I was looking at case law, looking at uh, the evidence, looking at witness statements, looking at uh, expert evidence and reports, searching out new experts in that case. In Gareth, again, similarly looking at the whole range of the evidence, uh, particularly looking at issues of people with learning disabilities within the criminal justice system in that case. Again, searching out experts, we ended up with three psychologists' reports to go to the Court of Appeal and looking at the way that Gareth was treated within the system and also looking at the, the facts of the case because part of being an innocence project is is actually, funny enough, looking at the issue of innocence. And it was quite clear that Gareth was, he hadn't committed this offence. The, the circumstantial elements of it showed clearly that he simply wouldn't have had time to do it apart from anything else. He would never have been able to sort of clean himself up and because he was he immediately sounded the alarm you know it just didn't make any sense in that respect um, of course having once you believe in somebody's innocence uh, you've then got to try and find a legal argument and the appeal system doesn't revisit trial issues it doesn't in a sense it doesn't revisit common sense anymore you've got to find some sort of legal avenue and argument and in gareth's case that was primarily around his learning disabilities and the way that was handled however we did also get some new medical evidence. Uh, we got a, a doctor's report because one of, one of the problems with that case was how did that wound occur if Gareth hadn't done it? And one of the things that really staggered me about that case was that uh, the Court of Appeal never accepted the new medical evidence. They didn't consider that to be important. No, no, I noticed that in the judgment because I was looking at what they said. Because like you said, in terms of the time period, just for the listeners, it was a four-minute time period, wasn't it? Hmm. when, uh, as you said, he was meant to be alone with the individual and then raise the alarm. And when they came in, he wasn't in a state of undress or anything like that. And there was no forensic evidence that suggested he'd done anything wrong whatsoever. But like you said, with the medical evidence that was submitted to the Court of Appeal, they didn't take that on board. And this is, I think, quite a significant um, issue on that case, because... The problem for the jury was that they couldn't, they were not given any explanation for the wound. What Dr. Wood did, who provided this report, was to look at what might have happened before 
lady went to the room, what might have happened at the time, the first day that was given by all the staff that sort of piled in, what might have happened later on when she had surgery. And she described a series of, potentially a series of medical mishaps, which gave an explanation for the wound. It was all perfectly tenable, coming from a very reputable source, an experienced doctor. And it provided, it would have provided the jury with an explanation for the wound, which was absolutely crucial. So it's baffling, really, why the Court of Appeal would not see that as important. I think the only reason is that the Court of Appeal is very reluctant to accept new evidence in that way. And, and you know, for, although they did accept the psychological evidence, but that was a procedural sort of thing. What they didn't want to accept was something that actually would have, would undoubtedly have influenced the jury because it would have shown them there was another way this could have happened. And I think one of the things that was quite striking with that case is to me anyway as someone who practices is that in the original trial there was an agreed report statement from the prosecution and defense expert that was presented to the jury they didn't hear live evidence from the experts in relation to how the injury might or might not have been caused I'll clarify that it's a very important point actually that yeah the did accept that the the joint statement made by the experts the point, the thing that we pointed out was that the experts, the defence and prosecution, have described what they agree with in this joint statement, mm-hmm. but not what they disagreed with. And when you look to their actual reports, there was quite profound disagreements, particularly in their conclusions. The Court of Appeal did, in fact, accept that as one of the grounds. Um, they accepted that while there's nothing wrong in principle with the joint statement in that case, because they hadn't properly examined their disagreements, then that was seen as unfair so they did accept that ground as well. Um, Holly I wondered if you could just say like how many students are currently involved with the project and and how do they sort of fit that in with their their general studies? So this year we've had the biggest sort of cohort of students we've had just over 90 on the project at any one time and we've had about 13 groups of students and there's normally about six to eight well, I suppose this year, probably more like eight students per group. And the majority of those are are working on, on individual cases and reviewing cases and trying to identify potential grounds for appeal. But this year, because we had such a huge interest from the students, we also decided to start sort of looking at other issues. So Dennis was overseeing a kind of policy group of students who were trying to look into aspects of prison law, particularly during the COVID pandemic and sort of the way they were being treated. So, And we also had a couple of groups who are doing a a research project, essentially, in reviewing all of our cases. So in the last probably five to six years, we predominantly have letters from people claiming that they've been wrongly convicted of historic sexual offences. In a lot of these cases, the offences might date back, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 years without kind of specific timeframes. And we're quite interested in, you know, how these claims are coming about, how a defendant is able to kind of mount a defence in those kind of circumstances. So we've also had students looking at that. In terms of how they fit it in, they're expected to do about three to four hours of work with us a week outside of their studies. And the sort of way they get on the project is basically doing a module in their second year, which is about miscarriages of justice. So it kind of links to their studies in that way as well in the second year. And how do they cope 
when they don't get anywhere with a case because you've talked about having we talked about the two success stories that you had mm. but obviously if they become heavily involved in a case and they believe that person's innocent and the work that they do doesn't lead to anything how do they cope with that and how do you sort of manage those expectations so Dennis and I have actually spent a lot of time trying to almost put the students off joining the project before they do in that sense. Um, we've, we try to sort of really explain to them, you know, the difficulties involved in the appeal system, the hurdles that they'll face. We'll put the figures into context, you know, about how many cases we've worked on, how many get nowhere, but also even the cases that you have mentioned, particularly like the Dwayne George case, for example, that application was submitted to the CCRC in 2010, and it didn't reach the Court of Appeal until December 2014. So all the students that had actually worked on that case were long gone in terms of, of being at the university. So we kind of just try to manage their expectations through that and they do I think they do struggle with it but because we've told them that so much at the outset they don't have any expectations really of of getting anywhere and a lot of them become you know some of them do the work and move on some of them become quite passionate about it and will stay in touch with us and they like to get updates on the cases and you know in that sense, if something was to happen, then, you know, a lot of our students would probably want to know about it and, and possibly be involved in supporting us through that. So I think we just try very hard to manage their expectations. And they're quite, you know, I'm always quite impressed with how, you know, prepared they are to sort of do their absolute best, despite knowing, you know, the limited chances. Also, from from both your point of view, the COVID pandemic, and I know that's something that, that impacted in the work that I do in a, in a big way, and sort of the constant changes to the criminal justice system with legal aid funding and, and various things. What sort of impact are those sort of things going to have on miscarriage of justice cases in the future, do, do you both think? Yeah, it's not something that I mean, impacts on us because of the dreadful conditions that our clients are being kept in, great infringement of international standards. Just to, just to sort of say for listeners, because some people might, might yeah. not know, I can certainly speak from my client's point of view that some of them are only being allowed out sort of 30, maybe an hour a day over mm. 30 minute sessions. They're obviously not allowed at the moment in most prisons to see family members or certainly haven't been allowed or friends to sort of see them in person. They... I've had clients, for instance, that have had to eat food that's been rotten or out of date and have had to sort of wash themselves. They can't have showers, so they've had to wash themselves using the cereal bowl that they've been given and various other things. But certainly there's been a dramatic effect. And also with legal visits, in some prisons you've got to do them remotely uh, and it's really hard to get in touch with anyone. Sometimes you're allowed in, but on quite limited situations. But I don't know what it's been like for, to the people you're working with, but that's my experience. Yeah, very similar, and, and we don't do that many. We do do some legal visits, um, but obviously we haven't been able to do those, and that, that can be a disadvantage, especially if you've got clients who are not particularly articulate and don't write very well. You really do need to see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the international standards known as the Mandela Rules um, define solitary confinement and, and define torture as being detained for 22 hours a day or more for 15 days. Well, prisoners in this country, the majority of them, 
been confined 23 hours or more a day for about a year and a half. So we're way off the scale in terms of human rights abuse in that respect. Um, so it impacts on us partly because you know we know that our clients are in a very bad situation. Uh, many of our clients are quite elderly. Two of our clients have died in the last year or so. We have at least one other client who's also in his 80s. So we are quite just concerned about them from a health point of view um, because we're dealing largely now with historical sex offences. Most of our clients are in the older age bracket and many of them are in very poor health. So that whole situation of dealing with that is is difficult and uh, and quite worrying And because the legal process, if it gets anywhere, it gets there extremely slowly. And these people just haven't really got time. You know, we're really quite concerned that they just simply won't survive this, uh, this situation. The other factor, of course, for us has been putting the whole project online, which you know, Holly may want to say a few words about. So yeah, we were we were sort of on a paper based system before, and all the case files were you know we've got mountains of storage. So when the pandemic hit, in order to keep obviously casework active, we had to try and get all the case files online as you know as quickly as we possibly could during the time when when it was very difficult to allow anyone in the building and to, to carry out that work. But yeah, we managed to, with the help of kind of other law schools find a kind of online platform where we've um, now got all the case files and we've been sort of having student meetings on Zoom kind of weekly during term time. So, you know, it worked It worked well in the end considering kind of what we were up against, but that was obviously a huge, huge impact on us and sort of did delay us certainly for the first like several months when we were in, in lockdown. In terms of how COVID might impact miscarriages of justice in the long term, I suppose just to just to add to kind of what what Dennis was saying, but because of you know how long there's been this backlog backlog of cases, I think there's a real risk that you know miscarriages of justice where someone's looking to appeal against their conviction could be, you know, even facing even longer delays. And the question of like the example I gave, the fact that uh, Dwayne George, you know, the the case was submitted to the CCRC in, in 2010 and didn't even get to court till four years later. You know, if the pandemic has an impact in terms of delaying that process even further, which is somewhat inevitable, um, I think, you know, there really is a crisis. And for the reasons that Dennis said, especially when you've got prisoners who might be in ill health or elderly who, you know, really do deserve to have an appeal. There are serious implications for that as well. No, absolutely. It's frightening, really, because, you know, you've got trials, as you know, not happening for a couple of years. You've got lots of people released under investigation for a significant period of time. And like you said, the whole system is backlogged. There's a massive backlog. And there's going to be a massive impact in the future, like with, like with lots of different areas and uh, walks of life. I, I appreciate, but it, it is quite different if you're if you're sat in a prison cell, like you said, for 23 hours out of 24 for a crime you didn't commit. Then that that is something that's going to have catastrophic effect. And one thing it's going to exacerbate further is the trend, which I'm sure you've noticed as a solicitor over recent years, to for justice to be kind of speeded up and uh, managed through almost just managing justice out of existence some of the you know the old cases we used to get there were masses and masses of files and long trials even long appeals and when i attended michael o'brien's appeal for example or news agent three's appeal 
we were there for two weeks. I thought it was going to never end. Appeals now last about a few hours, probably, in most cases. Uh, and trials seem to be getting shorter. So when we get the case papers for a case now, particularly if it's a historical sex offence case, there's almost nothing there. Um, you look at the, the summing up and the witnesses, you've got maybe the, the complainant, possibly the officer in the case, maybe the defendant if they give evidence, maybe one or two other people, press a red statement, that's about it. You know, you think, well, this is somebody's life at stake here and you, it's not being explored in, in any kind of detail at all. Um, and that kind of managing justice out of existence, I think, will could well be exacerbated by increasing pileups of cases in the courts. I wondered if you could both just say, because you, you obviously worked on cases like we talked about where someone hasn't been successful and there must be inevitably a case or cases each which has been difficult to accept you know to accept the decision that that, that it wouldn't go any further that the court of appeal or the criminal case review commission have said no we're not taking it further so i mentioned at the start um that you know the reason i got into this was because of one particular case to a certain extent in that it was the first case I worked on. And in that case, it was a very old case from from the 80s, but it had been on television programmes back in the 90s, like trial and error. It was a kind of classic, what appears to be a classic kind of miscarriage of justice in the sense that as the investigation's gone on, a lot of sort of evidence was exposed that really, really seemed to undermine the possibility that this person could have committed the offence. But involved in that was also elements of potential police malpractice. And you almost had to accept that the police had engaged in some malpractice in order to sort of accept that the person was innocent. And the CCRC did an amazing investigation on that case back in the 90s and uncovered loads of things that basically really brought into question um, the evidence against the person and the police's role in that. However, when it went to the Court of Appeal, they they rejected the case. don't think any of the supporters at the time would have expected that because it was su- it seemed to be such a strong case to show, to show innocence, not just, you know, a lack of safety. Um, so that was really hard because we were working on that. It was back in, back in 2008. And, you know, as students, we were quite naive. And we were like, you know, but this, like, they, how can they kind of not refer the case when we can we can point to all this evidence that, that undermines the conviction? But obviously, you know, we were just churning up things that the CCRC had already found and the Court of Appeal had already considered. And we, we reached a very sort of a point with the CCRC where we were just sort of locking horns over it. And they were saying, you know, we can't refer it. There isn't anything new. And it was really, really hard to accept, I think, for for myself, but also for for Dennis and Julie. So I think that would be mine. Yeah, I mean, there's been a number, really. That was certainly one of them, that case. And uh, there have been others where there's complete tunnel vision, sort of classic case construction in one case, but nothing. We thought we were getting somewhere. We had a positive barrister's advice in in this case, and it went to a solicitor who weren't really happy with that barrister's advice, so they got another one who gave a negative advice. And that was very frustrating because it's such a clear, you know, the case was a nonsense, Frank, to, because the jury had convicted for whatever reason, because the way it was presented or whatever, I don't know, you just can't revisit it. And we've got a number of cases like that. Some of the sex abuse cases, I think, people are almost 
turned out to be innocent. There was a, we had a nursing case which seemed to be based purely on gossip. There was no suggestion of any malpractice in terms of um, giving uncontrolled medication, unprescribed medication, nothing like that. Just really a set of gossip about people you know, speculating about the way that a certain person was practicing. Yeah. So some very, very frustrating cases, uh, which, you know, sometimes you get, you do get a few cases where you feel, you know, this really is obviously a miscarriage of justice and, and yet you can't do anything about it. Probably the majority of our cases, you kind of just don't know particularly with the sex abuse cases, nobody can prove one way or the other. can't prove innocence any more than you can prove guilt. And I think that's very often, what, going back to the previous question, what, what we get from students is, you know, students look at a case and I feel very strongly the person is innocent. More often than not, what they say is, well, we, we don't know, but you shouldn't really convict somebody on this evidence. This evidence is just not, it's just too thin. You know, there's just nothing here. Yeah, terribly frustrating in in that way. And something that I think the students uh, learn about the system is that proof beyond reasonable doubt is really a myth. You know, it just doesn't really happen. uh, Somehow people can come to believe things which really, on the face of it, appear quite ridiculous. No, I mean, at the end of the day, like we all know, you're innocent until proven guilty. And especially with historical sex cases, which we do a lot of that sort of work there's no forensic evidence there's no cctv evidence it's usually based on one or two or however many complainants word against the defendant and and so i can see why the students would would struggle with the idea well how can someone be sure without additional sort of evidence to back it up I, i wondered if you could just say you could give any words of advice or wisdom to people who might be sat in their cell as we speak wrongfully convicted what what would you advise them to do in your experience of working on the project? We, we always, our, our first letter that goes back to people actually says, not quite in these words, but more or less put it, the message is, don't come to us. Try and get the best legal advice you possibly can. Mm. We're a last resort student-based project. That's what we tell people. They usually come back to us anyway. It does, I think, put some people off. But of course, that's normally not normally possible to get the best legal advice. In fact, you not need probably any legal advice, and if you do, it probably tells you you've got no grounds for appeal. I suppose all you can say to people is that if they are innocent, then they, they have to um, stand by their own conscience and be consoled in that fact, and to keep trying every avenue they possibly can. In the past, I would have said, you know, there's a kind of, going back, we talked about the Cardiff News Agent 3 in Michael Bryan's case. There's a kind of issue what, what the way they did it. Michael wrote to everyone from the Queen downwards, and he he also had a family support. He got in touch with our little group of uh, campaigners, and then we contact. We got in touch with the media. We then got in touch with lawyers. We then got in touch with experts. So it's kind of a chain of fortune. Once you get something going, then things begin to happen a little bit. But I think that's sort of less true now. I think it's much more difficult. The media thing has almost almost died out. There's not many. There's not rough justice, trial and error, those sort of programs anymore that are really investigating things. I mean, there are a few, but not many. So it's, it's, it's more difficult than it used to be, I think. It used to be a case of you know, trying to get as much support as you possibly can and linking together media, experts, lawyers, because the media will often pay for an expert or encourage, get a, a lawyer interested because the, the case has become more high profile. It's almost like there's so many cases of miscarriage of justice now that it's almost there's too much competition for anybody to get anywhere. Even innocence projects like ours are flooded with applications more than we can cope with. And that's true of almost every organisation that does this sort of thing. So it would be very difficult to advise people apart from 
you know, try and get as much support as they possibly can from from their family, from experts, from lawyers, from everyone as possibly can help. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't really have anything to add to that, except for that I do know, you know, there are organized, I mean, it's very difficult when you're in your cell, obviously, to access this, but, you know, there are organizations on the outside that, you know, campaign for miscarriages of justice, like, like Maxine, you mentioned, Mojo, and then there's also like United Against Injustice. And we, prior to the pandemic, we used to run a local group called South Wales Against Wrongful Conviction. And I always found that was very important for the families, at least on, on the outside, trying to fight for person on the inside but also people when they came out of prison to come it was basically a support group where you know we met and people had the chance to chat and kind of air you know how they were feeling and with people that actually understood um and by that I don't mean myself and Dennis I mean you know other families who were going through the same thing that kind of support network can be really important but like I said, obviously, that's more difficult whilst you're inside, but certainly something to look for, I think, once you're able to. No, I appreciate that. And I appreciate both of you taking the time to talk to us about the work that you do and the cases that you've been involved in. And it's certainly something that I would have relished when I was at university to do, because I think, like you said, they can really make a difference. And it gives them a real insight because who knows, like one day they could find themselves or a family member in that sort of position. So even if they don't go on to practice criminal law or get involved in miscarriage justice work, it gives them a real insight for their future as to what, what to do if it happened to them or someone they know. Yeah, so I'm just on, on for that last point. I think we should never underestimate the importance of, I sometimes refer to it as palliative care, but actually trying to, to listen to people and to, you know, perhaps give them the benefit of the doubt, but or, or actually believe them. This, uh, the fact that you're prepared to listen and and take seriously their claim of innocence, I think in itself can be, you know, in some cases, almost a lifesaver for people. And I think one thing I do feel quite good about in terms of the project is that most of our clients, even when we've failed to get any success in terms of an appeal have come to us at the end of the day and said well you know you did a good job you did as much as you possibly could and i really appreciate it so and some of you know said that it's been a, a bit of a lifeline for them so that we shouldn't underestimate that aspect of it in my view absolutely no thank you very both very much for talking to me on the podcast thank you I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Dennis and Holly for sharing with us what the Cardiff Innocence Project does to help those who have been wrongly convicted. It was of particular interest to me because of course I went to Cardiff University and I wish that something like that was around when I did my studies. In the next episode, I talked to Adrian Stone. For those of you who don't know who he is, at the age of 21, he was charged with conspiracy to cause explosions. He spent six and a half months on remand for a crime he didn't commit and his trial came known as the Cardiff Explosions Conspiracy Trial. In the summing up, the judge said, the central decision you have to make is as to honesty of the witnesses. The main contest is between the police and the defendants.